Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning and welcome to Green Left Radio. Um, this is Zane. And this is Lalita. We're having some technical issues here. I can't hear a thing <laughs> on the earphones. But that's okay as long as you can hear me. Can you hear me? I can hear. Okay, cool. That's good <laughs> enough. <laughs> good morning, listeners. Good to be back. I've had a very long break traveling around in Thailand and, Malay- and India. I got very sick in India. But anyway, that's all right. But it was good fun. Good yeah, to be back, back. Yes. Okay. So we've got heaps of things happening at the moment, mm. politically and otherwise. Yeah, there's much going on, and uh, just this last week, it is um, actually 25 years since Green Left Weekly was launched. Yes. Yay. Uh, when it was first published on February 18, 1991. Bob Hawke was Prime Minister, the worst drought in Australia's recorded history was beginning, and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, had just released its first assessment report, which concluded that immediate reductions in emissions from human activities of over 60% were needed to stabilise their concentrations at today's levels. Uh, The war in the Balkans was just beginning, but the first US-Iraq war would draw to a close within a few days. Australia still welcomed refugees, but then Labor government was already preparing to introduce mandatory detention for anyone arriving without a valid visa. Green Left Weekly was conceived, as the name suggests, as a paper that would provide a weekly dose of local and international news and comment slanted towards environmental issues and with a left-wing bent. We aimed at reaching a broader audience than existing socialist papers that strictly towed the party line, inverted commas. Um, so yeah, for 25 years, Green Left has been a beacon for people interested in real news. We report the resistance to government and corporate attacks and try to build links between people involved in environmental, feminist, LGBTI, anti-war, refugee rights, Aboriginal rights, anti-racist, trade union and many other campaigns. And women's rights. And blackfellas rights. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, 25 years, going yes, strong. Yes, wonderful. And uh, planning to stick around for another 25. Or more. Mm. <laughs> be good fun. But um, did you hear last night's news? We've got a new Deputy Prime Minister. Uh. <laughs> Barnaby Joyce. Yeah, there was a, uh, there's a few memes going around about that including one with Barnaby Joyce (laughs) seemingly in deep thought (laughs) while looking at a llama. Well, I'm not not saying anything about that, but (laughs) (laughs) the last I remember not long ago was that on the top of his salary, Barnaby Joyce had spent half a million dollars just travelling. That's insane. 
And we have 35,000 people on the list for housing in mm. Victoria alone. Mm. This is the contrast and the, the, the divide between not just the rich, but ju- even the politicians. And it's almost, you know, leaps out at you. Said, this is what you call working class and ruling class and politicians who actually work for the ruling class and not the people. Mm. And that's what it, it tells you, you know. The people sleeping under the bridge down the Yarra, and yet here we have someone who spent half a million dollars traveling. Mm. Yes, Australia's a big country, but hey, come on. In, in England, people travel, the, the politicians travel to work on the train. Mm. And I know that Corbyn cycles to her work. Some of these buggers need to lose weight, so they should get on the bicycle and get a, a mm. taste of bikies and ride around. Environment, example, you know, less money spent on transport. Anyway, it's my binge for the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, I've visited the blockade up at the Liverpool Plains where Shenhua and BHP Billiton are trying to destroy some of the most fertile land, uh, farming land in Australia and the world mm. uh, by building some massive coal mines there. Yes. And... Um, one of the things that's really come through with that campaign is that Barnaby Joyce and the Nationals are uh, uh, nowhere to be seen yes. uh, when it comes to defending the rights of farmers. So in theory, the National Party is meant to be the farmer's voice in practice on key issues like coal seam gas and coal mining destroying farming land. Uh, Barnaby Joyce is just another puppet of corporate Australia and is not prepared to speak out against those uh, those mining interests who, whose, whose interests are absolutely opposed That's right. to the interests of farmers, even big, like, even big business farmers. I think the biggest issue in, in that, contained within that, in, in fact, is the fact that you know, farmers would like to care for the land. There is no desire... By, displayed by any of the politicians at this stage that I can obviously slay, see, or anyone for that matter, to preserve the health of the land. And add to that the Great Barrier Reef in, in the Queensland area mm. where the um, waste products run into the um, Great Barrier Reef. That was already happening and, mm. and affecting the corals. Now you have mining, and I know for a fact that there are at least six um, exploratory uh, activities are along the coast of Queensland for oil. Mm. So what the nationals are doing is beyond me. I mean, what are they doing is a question. And do we know anything positive they're doing for the farmers? You know, there's suicide by farmers all over the world. And in Australia, it's, it's still happening. And yet you have a national... Party's leader, now the Deputy Prime Minister, I want to know what his plans are for the farmers and the people who live on the land. Mm. Really, it's atrocious. But anyway, let's keep moving on. Um, yeah, our good friend Carlos Sands from um, Green Left, he's done a satirical little editorial piece. Uh, Green Left Weekly is marking its 25th anniversary which is a truly remarkable achievement for an independent paper without corporate funding, and one which could not have been achieved without a lot of hard work over many years by more people than could be named, 
But if we really had to name one key supporter, it would be hard to go past the Australians, Jared Henderson, as one of the most dedicated promoters of Green Left's good work. <laughs> it's hard to overstate the value of Henderson and others at Rupert Murdoch's The Australian in repeatedly referencing Green Left as the key example of everything they despise. <laughs> it's a stock insult to anyone leaning slightly to the left of Murdoch that they sound like Green Left Weekly has been a never-ending source of inspiration. Yes. <laughs> the most recent example came on February 1 when the Australian's James Jeffrey sought to attack the Greens candidate who we had on last week for the seat of Sydney, um, uh, for the seat of Grainler, Jim Casey, by pointing out that Casey had been quoted in Green Left way back in 2000. <laughs> Yes, the firefighter and trade unionist turned Greens candidate got his name in our paper 16 years ago. As scoops go, it isn't quite Watergate, but it does make me think that the Oz has also noted in it that it's our 25th birthday and they're replaying our greatest hits to celebrate. It's actually quite <laughs> thoughtful. <laughs> Very slow. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, so... Yes. Um, we actually have a full-on program. We should give people a bit of a rundown on, on what we have. Sorry, sure. uh, listeners. We um, yeah, we've got a couple of guests uh, this morning that we're going to interview. We've got three. Um, uh, first of all, we're going to be talking to Steve O'Brien. That's right. Steve is a Socialist Alliance activist from Newcastle, and he's also a member of the Central Council of the Public Sector Association mm-hmm. in New South Wales. That's the union for... Um, yeah, different public sector workers. Um, and, and we're going to talk to him about Bernie Saunders, who's creating waves in the U.S. Mm. because Hillary Clinton is um, seriously challenged by him mm. and Donald Trump is romping it in. So we're going to have some fun games with that, what's happening in the U.S. The other person is Sarah Hathaway. Uh, who's a member of RISER, which is the Youth Section of Social Alliance, and her recent trip to Malaysia. And that will be an interesting one because it involves Australian issue, um, which is a TPP. Mm. And we'll talk more about that in the interview, of course. And last but not least, we're going to talk to a, a FIDA ACTU representative about the East Timor and what Tanya Plibersak has stated about uh, uh, reviewing maybe modifying relationships to the East Timor. So mm. lots of things coming up, um, folks. So stay tuned. Welcome back. We have Steve O'Brien on the line. Yes. Um, welcome, Mor- Steve. Yeah, Morning, sure. Steve. Hi. I'm on the line. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can hear you. How's it going? <laughs> so, uh, yes, Steve, uh, Socialist Alliance activist, and you're also a member of the um, Public Sector Association uh, Central Council up there in New South Wales. That's right, Public Services Association. That's yep. right. We're a union that covers the public sector workers. We have about 38,000 members. And we're battling the privatisation of our state government. Yeah. Having some wins, um, but it's a hard slog. Mm. Um, tough wicket. All right, speaking of hard slog, um, <laughs> Bernie Sanders has uh, uh, put himself up to be the Democratic candidate. Uh, for president in the USA, and uh, he's uh, he's doing a Jeremy Corbyn over there. He's actually gathering a surprising amount of support. Yeah, I find it really encouraging and, and um, quite a positive model mm. that Australian workers can look towards. I wouldn't necessarily put an equal 
equal sign between Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders. I think they're quite different scenarios. British Labour Party is totally different to the American uh, Democratic Party. Mm. But, um, yeah, I do think it's really positive what Sanders is doing there in terms of articulating a different vision of society that's based on human values rather than just the profit motive. Mm. And you're uh, you're not new to um, the name Bernie Sanders. You had a opinion piece published in the Newcastle Herald um, uh, about a, a week back, and uh, you said that um, Peter Cameo, the socialist activist, was visiting from the USA way back in the mid '80s, and uh, he was telling um, telling comrades at the time about this uh, independent socialist who'd been elected um, mayor in, in Vermont. Yeah, that was, that was really interesting. Uh, Peter Kamea was a, a very articulate socialist activist. Um, he actually ran for the presidency for the socialist workers there. He got over 100,000 votes, he, and he later ran as a, on a joint ticket as, his, as the vice presidential candidate for Ralph Nader, the... Um, the consumer rights activist, and, and they polled really well. Peter was really, really articulate. He wrote the famous pamphlet, How to Make a, a Revolution. Hmm. Really got really great popularizer of socialist ideas. So he was very much attuned to who was doing what in the American left, and he had been to see Bernie Sanders as well. The other thing too is that um, I was particularly pricked up my ears when I heard this, when I heard the presentation, would have been in the mid-80s because a couple of years before I'd been in the United States, actually I was collaborating on a a little project with Peter Kamea then in in, in about 83, and I witnessed the uh, Jesse Jackson campaign for presidency. Jesse Jackson formed what was called the Rainbow Coalition, Mm. which really shook up the American primaries. In a, in a similar way to which um, Bernie Sanders is doing now, but, but Sanders is much more to the left than what uh, what Jesse Jackson did. That also means that um, I've got a little bit of a, a history in terms of understanding what happened to the Jackson campaign and, and what what's happening now with the Sanders campaign in terms of, well, I don't think I'm naive in... in, in I don't think I'm... I'm not blind to the potential of which way the Sanders campaign could go. It could go really um, skewed, or it could keep on articulating this alternative vision to society. So, yeah, that's a long-winded way of saying that I heard Peter Kameo talk about Bernie Sanders in the mid-'80s at a, at a talk in, in Newcastle when he was on a national speaking tour, and I've been you know, following more or less his, his campaigns ever since. And, and just for the record, what did happen to the Jesse Jackson campaign and, and what sort of risks do you reckon there is, um, never mind after Sanders might potentially be elected, but what could happen between now and when the Democratic Party actually decides who, who's going to be the, their candidate? Because I've been reading about these superdelegates and how that skews the process. Well... Fundamentally, the, the Democratic Party is um, it's a capitalist party. It's very conservative. It's dominated by the, by the machine. The machine really have a huge say in who gets to be the, the candidate. Like, um, I think a couple of campaigns ago, um, 
they, I think it was Dennis Kucinich, he was a left progressive, a trade union activist, trade union supporter, I think he'd held an elected position. They wouldn't even allow him to, to run for the Democratic Party nomination. So it's really tightly controlled. Somehow Bernie Sanders has managed to, to, to break through that and, um, and get a bit of a kickstart and demonstrate that he can really mobilise voters. So I guess in a sense that's why the Democratic Party establishment is tolerating Bernie Sanders at the moment because he's re-energising the base in a, in a similar way to which Jesse Jackson done. Now, to be, you know, to be truthful, you know, some of us, oh, I guess myself included in the, uh, in, in the early 80s, thought that Jackson might go somewhere with his campaign. It wasn't immediately tied up with the Democratic Party. And there was a potential for him to, to split and, and to break away from the, the, the Democratic Party and actually create a, a broad left, uh, formation. One of the problems you have in, in, in United States politics is you just have this two party system where there's, they're both full-on capitalist parties, and you don't have anything that's based upon a, a labour formation. The unions don't have their, their independent um, uh, political party, which they which they look to in the United States. So, what could happen to, to Bernie Sanders' campaign? Well, it, it could it could be like what happened to to Jesse Jackson. It actually got used by the machine to draw activists towards the Democratic Party, and then and then gear them into to supporting that sort of campaign, which was ultimately unsuccessful because Reagan was still re-elected. That could happen with um, with Bernie Sanders, who knows? But in the meantime, um, that, that also that's an issue for the uh, United States you know, activists to, to figure out. I think in Australia we, we have, a, to a degree, the luxury of being able to, to look at what Sanders is doing and, mm. and looking at the way he's able to articulate an alternative vision to society and look at the ways able to mobilise young people and, and learn from that. And myself being a public sector worker, look at the way in which he actually defends the public sector, free education, free health care, income, mm. in a, addressing income inequality, taxing the rich. They're all things that we can, we can really learn from there. So what ends up with the Bernie Sanders campaign? Well, you know, it's possibly... Um, the Democratic Party establishment won't allow him to get the nomination and they will expect him to draw all his supporters in behind the uh, Clinton campaign. So I'm not naive to that, but that to me is not the central issue in, in Australia at the moment. It's a central issue for American activists, of course. For us, the, the question is what can we learn? How can we learn from his campaigns? How can we learn better to mobilise people? Mm. One of the things um, that I'm curious about, Steve, is that uh, I heard that there has been a call for Bernie Sanders if the Democratic Party, uh, with its machinations, does the dirty on him, is to ask him to stand as an independent candidate, as a third force. Have you heard much about that? Well, I've heard much about that. I've heard about that. He ruled it out at the beginning. What you, what you have to remember with Bernie Sanders is only actually recently become a Democrat. For many years he was self-described independent socialist. He ran his campaigns in Burlington as a socialist. He ran for the excuse me, Congress as a socialist and to the Senate. Was only to become a candidate for the Democratic Party primaries that he formally became a Democrat. He had been, in effect, working quite closely with the Democratic Party and was in many ways indistinguishable from the left of the, of the Democrats, but he was never formally. So in that sense, he's become... 
a Democrat quite late in the game, but yeah, you're quite right. You know, well, I think we can also we can also look at the hypocrisy here. That, that Sanders indicated that he will continue to support the Democratic Party, come what way, if he doesn't get the nomination. Interestingly, Donald Trump hasn't been saying that. You know, he's left open the possibility of him running as an independent if he doesn't get the Republican Party nomination. Sanders <laughs> hasn't gone that hasn't gone that far. But what, but what I think is really interesting here is Sanders is displaying more loyalty to the Democratic Party machine than the machine is demonstrating towards Sanders. Because mm. Sanders was saying, yes, I will support the ultimate Democratic Party candidate. But the machine is actively working to bring down Sanders' mm. Sanders's campaign. And some of the machine are actually saying that they wouldn't support him if he's the candidate, and they certainly wouldn't support his policies if he's elected. So I think Bernie Sanders is a fairly wily politician and he'll make that assessment. If he's, he's, if he's trouncing Hillary Clinton all the way down the line and has massive support in the polls, well, yeah, it's, it's open to possibility that he may decide to, to run as, a, as an independent candidate if he's bureaucratically denied the presidential nomination by the Democratic Party. But that's pure speculation on my part. What's interesting, though, is that Bernie Sanders talks about a political revolution. He's talking about, you know, the power is not held by voters, the power is not held by governing officials, the power is held by the rich, by the 1% that dominate, dominate the US economy, dominate the world economy, mm. and they're the people ultimately that have to be tackled. So if he takes the logic of that position that we need a political revolution all the way, well, you know, who knows mm. what? may transpire all speculation on my part but mm. as i say it's not so much a con i'm not so much concerned about that i'm really interested in the what he says as a way of trying to mobilize people in australia in defense of the public sector in defense of free education free health care and tax the rich mm. that's right even to, even to get people to take an interest and discuss these issues is, um, is it's at the moment proving to be a little bit on the difficult side because i know for the climate change rally we had about what, 60,000 people here, give or take, you know, a few mm. thousand. And that's supposed to be the largest in the world. There seems to be an inertia, um, you know, demonstrated so far towards campaigns that are really important to defend the planet, the people, etc., 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 it goes on and on. But that inertia is what we're looking at in Australia. And what you described, Steve, is... You know, you can mirror it in Australia, really. You have politicians who are representatives of the rich and, and pay no attention to the needs of the poor. In fact, they are attacking the poor with all this, you know, new um, GSD stuff and um, now the attack on Medicare and so on. Um, it's, it's not that much different. It seems to be a neoliberal agenda across the world, and that's what we seem to see. Uh, even between America and here, except the system's slightly different, the way they, they um, select and elect people, supposedly. Uh, the machines always seem to come into play and uh, play their card on behalf of big business. Uh, but that's, that's a good insight, Steve. Thank you so much for coming on at this early in the morning. Um, we'll have to come back to you when um, things get a bit more heated because... Um, Hillary Clinton has, I think, lost New Hampshire, and uh, the race is on. Uh, supposedly, she's um, put uh, touted to get more of the women's and the black uh, communities' votes in other states. So we'll see what happens. Yep, we 
we'll see what happens. But I, I tend to have a more of a positive outlook on the whole thing. I mean, being an embattled public sector worker, the <laughs> response to my article has been quite positive. There's yeah. been a really good discussion, a lot of shares. My union has even carried an article yep. about Bernie Sanders in, in our magazine. Because, you know, we see there's really interesting things there, and we're trying to articulate that alternative vision to a neoliberal strategy. Yeah, and I think That's you're right. quite right. Labor Party, no. <laughs> they're all full of liberals and unfortunately they're full of yeah. anti-liberals that's why we see no clear distinction between short and, and Turnbull, yep Mm. Wonderful. Okay, we shall keep this um, discussion running in, in, in the long term until the elections yeah, come. Have to check in with you again at some point. Okay. And, uh, yep, sure. See what's happening well, with the PSA too. Good luck with the rest of the program. Okay. Thanks, Steve. All right, cheers. Okay. That was Steve O'Brien from um, Newcastle up early this this time of the morning talking to us. Okay, um, we're going to have a a sting before we move on to the next one. Green Left Radio. All right. Moving on. Yes. We have Sarah Hathaway online. Good morning, Sarah. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Sarah is an activist with um, Resistance Young Socialist Alliance and has recently gone to Malaysia for a bit of a Solidarity Brigade tour. Uh, one of our other co-presenters, Fergal McGovern, was also on that trip. And, uh, yeah, we're keen to talk to you, Sarah, about the, uh, the TPP campaign in particular because I understand when you are over there there was a, a big rally against the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah, no, it was quite big. Um, there ended up being two separate rallies on the streets of Kuala Lumpur. Um, and that was because the conservative Islamic party over there called PAS, um, followed police directions and had their rally in a rather secluded spot of the city. Um, but the, the more progressive activists, um, including the Socialist Party of Malaysia, who were touring us around, um, anarchists and other independents, um, put their foot down and said, no, we want to march through a more visible part of the city. Um, which I think technically was illegal, but they went ahead and did it anyway, <laughs> yeah. um, which was quite good. Right. So what's the sentiment towards the TPP um, in Malaysia? Um, I think there's uh, more awareness around it in Malaysia compared to Australia, um, and that's because the PSM, along with other activists, um, are making that, a priority campaign um, and they're in the process of doing um, a bit of like a, a national roadshow on the TPPA. Um, so they're touring around um, Peninsula Malaysia and having public forums in different cities. Hmm. So that's good. At least the, the public are being informed, unlike here where we have no information about what's happening, um, especially because the, this particular agreement has been discussed in secret for 12 years and it's about to be signed. Um, I believe um, the parliament is looking at uh, signing it in March. But what's a government in uh, Malaysia to have that has Malaysia signed the TPP yet? Um, so they would have been part of that symbolic signing um, in New Zealand just a few weeks ago. Um, but my understanding is that uh, the Malaysian parliament still needs to vote on it. Um, and then from what 
uh, the PSM members were explaining that once it's voted on, they have two years to start rolling it out, um, at which point there'll be, um, you know, whether it's healthcare, there's stuff around copyright issues, one by one as they start to change their laws, um, activists over there will need to start campaigning against aspects of the TPPA as they get rolled in. Yeah, and one of the, the key components of the TPP, as we call it here, um, is that there's a, a very clear distinct, a clear opposition to, to using local content for several things. Because recently in India, when uh, the uh, Modi government was rolling out the solar panel project, they were opposed by the WTO uh, from using local material for solar panels. So I'm wondering if the Malaysian campaign involves issues like that and if there are other issues in particular pertaining to Malaysia. I wonder if, if you can explain that to us. Yeah, um, from what I saw um, just from placards at the rally, um, the big issue seems to be around healthcare. Um, particularly, I think there was a, a HIV um, awareness or support group that was part of that rally because um, they're worried about you know having access to medicine um, for that. Um, and the other issue that um, the Socialist Party are making people aware of is around copyright. Um, so basic things, if you were a teacher at a school or a university lecturer, um, you can't photocopy materials for your students anymore. That becomes illegal. Oh, under God. the TPPA. Um, what? So it's basically just <laughs> going to make life really hard for, you know, everyday workers in Malaysia and the same here and um, the same in all the other countries that are part of the agreement. Mm. It's it's amazing that, that in Australia people know so little about what this agreement actually means for everyday life. And um, there's the campaign here is pretty weak as far as I can see. Um, so how how is it that in Malaysia they've got such a uh, enthusiastic campaign as opposed to Australia against the TPPA there? Um, well, from what we understood, we participated in a, a public forum. Um, and the process that Australia is going through now in terms of, you know, all the neoliberal attacks, the privatisation of everything, um, that happened in Malaysia um sort of around the 1980s. So they've already sort of had a lot of that basis cut. Um, and now the TPA is on top of that um, and they're well aware and they've got a focus. Um, whereas our sort of understanding is that in Australia, we've got so many austerity measures and cuts coming down and up from our own federal government um, that's distracting us from this even bigger threat of the TPP. Mm-hmm. So, okay, um, now getting on the TPP, what other issues did you see that were relevant in Malaysia that are interesting to report? Um, environmental issues um, are huge over there, um, and that sort of encompasses a few things, including overdevelopment. It was just really bizarre. Everywhere you went, there was, you know, huge new housing estates being built, um, just, you know, cut and copy houses, rows and rows and rows, um, huge mega malls going up. 
and then you'd go two blocks down the street and there'd just be all these empty businesses. Um, So it's becoming really apparent. It's just development for development's sake because that's where all the money is. Um, But the buildings aren't necessarily needed. Um, And meanwhile, you know, they're clearing rainforest to do that. Um, And just out of curiosity, I went and did some research and it turns out that Malaysia is losing its rainforest um, at the highest rate amongst um, the South Asian countries, mm, um, which is pretty worrying. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because the orangutan uh, campaign is a big one, especially in um, East Malaysia, where they are losing their habitat and many of them are actually dying very quickly. They'll be become endangered species. That's one issue. The other issue is dumping of um, uh, waste products from Australia in Kuantan in Malaysia. Did you hear much about those two campaigns? Yes. Um, yeah, in regards to Australia, Australia is dumping. Um, we did hear about that. Um, and the other thing that Australia is responsible for is there's quite a few gold mines um, that are owned by Australian companies and they're doing, you know, huge levels of um, environmental destruction in the area. Mm. So we've got a lot to answer for in terms of Malaysia's yes. <laughs> environmental crisis. Yeah, I think where gold is, the sort of rock that's typically got gold in it is uh, tend to have sulphur and other stuff in it. So generally, when you have gold mining, uh, you have a lot of acid runoff, and that's been a lot of issues in... Uh, that's been a big issue in Malaysia and other countries where there's, uh, there's well, probably agreements like the TPP and just not the political will from governments to do anything about that acid runoff. Uh, so, yeah, trashing the environment... And it's also more than that because um, in, uh, in, in Malaysia in the um, 80s they established tree trade zones by the dozens and they had absolutely appalling safety conditions. Mm-hmm. There were uh, huge factories that made components that make up TV, mobile phone, you, all the electronic um, stuff that we use as if it's sort of you know wonderfully safe but people suffered enormously with uh, skin rashes a lot of my family members were affected by it and cancers galore among people who worked in those factories mm. um so it, it it is it is frightening to think that now the tpp on the top of these poor working conditions and you have unions in, in, in malaysia but majority of them actually yellow unions which means they are company-sponsored unions. So we have poor working conditions, poor wages. You also have a government that's very, well, neoliberal and enormous amount of corruption. Recently, the prime minister was accused of um, embezzling $7 billion somehow that landed in his account, and um, he couldn't explain as to where it came from. He said it was a gift from Saudi Arabia and, and he could not pinpoint exactly which Saudi Arabian king or sheikh gave it to him. Oh, well, who asks questions when $7 billion turns <laughs> up in your bank right. account? And his wife turned up at a bank with a, a two bagfuls of cash to deposit and she could explain, apparently, oh, according to the just, news. Just I found it under the bed. There's all sorts of stuff going on there, you know, mm. and um, in the middle of the day, the TPP. So all interesting stuff. And uh, anything else you want to report on, Sarah, while you, t- while you were there that you found, um, you know, interesting? Well, I think it's worth mentioning just quickly that despite um, all this environmental destruction that is happening, 
Um, according to the United Nations, Malaysia actually has some of the strongest environmental protection policies, again, in South Asian countries. Yeah, and yet all this is still happening. So I think you just touched on it, Lali, that the, the big issue here is government corruption. Um, and so a lot of the work that the Socialist Party are doing um, is taking these cases to um, the anti-corruption bodies um, and then usually having to take them further to the Human Rights Commission of Malaysia mm. um, because they just can't get any recourse through um, the government despite the laws that are there in place. One of the key things in Malaysia is the race politics and this racial divide between the Malays, Chinese and Indians. Um, did you get the feel that this racial divide was hampering any campaigns run by the Party Socialist Malaysia? Um, yeah, in a way. I mean, traditionally, um, the Socialist Party of Malaysia has recruited um, the Indian Malays um, and it's only just recently... Um, through the different campaign work that they're doing, that they are starting to recruit um, ethnic Malays and Chinese Malays, um, which they're, you know, pretty excited about because it's diversifying the party. Um, there was another, I think just to highlight this, there was a case that um, everywhere we went, people were talking about it um, in terms of the whole, you know, race religion issue, um, is that there was a Hindu couple um that had three children, and the husband made the decision to convert to Islam. That's right. Um, and took the three kids, including, I think, a four-month-old baby, um, and said, these children are now Muslim, um, and the mother, who's still Hindu, now has no access to her children. Um, and this case is going to be decided in the Sharia court, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which is going to set a huge precedent. Oh, yeah. Um, we can almost predict where that's going to go. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and there's also a push from um, right-wing parties to bring Sharia law into the criminal court as well. Mm. Um, so I guess, so, you know, there's a bit of concern there about the role that religion is playing in the justice system and um, especially if, you know, sec- secular activists. Um, part, yeah. of, part of the, the problem here is that while the... Um, PAS, which is the Muslim party, which rules uh, the two northern states in Malaysia, um, has potential to form a coalition with the ruling, current ruling party. The current ruling party has been losing votes over the last two sets of elections. They have been the ruling party since independence in 1957. So I think that's the political um, scenario that's developing. So they have to accommodate, or they, they, they seem pressured to, to have to accommodate the Sharia law because that's what the uh, PSM, um, P, um, pass ones so that they can bring in the Sharia law. So there's some sort of compromise, political comp- compromise going on between Barisan National and um, PAS. So it'll be very interesting to see how it all turns out in the end because there's only so much people are going to put up with. Even the poor Malays don't relate to Sharia law. That's the, the key thing um, to, to understand. And many of the poor Malays or working class Malays didn't vote for Pakistan National despite its campaigns to support Malays. They brought in massive amount of Malays into the public service to promote. Um, there was a race divide in, in where people worked. And this whole scenario is now playing out and there's a realignment of 
people according to class as opposed to race, and that's a difficult path at the moment, I believe. I don't know if you've got that feel or not, but, you know, um, um, coming yeah. from Malaysia, I, and I sort of have a historical understanding of this, this political shenanigans that goes on. Um, but anyway, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, so um, good. I have to say that, yeah, fingers crossed for the Socialist Party. Um, they'll be running in elections in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully they retain their candidate as well as, um, you know, get more elected so that they can shine a light on all the corruption that's happening in yeah. the government. Yeah, but, but they're a fairly large party, aren't they? How many, how many members do they have? Um, I didn't actually um, get an exact figure of their membership. Um, but I think from, from what they explained, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they are going through a growth period at the moment in terms of recruitment. They're opening up an, uh, a couple of new branches. Um, so I think those are all positive signs. Um, and certainly having Dr. Kumar elected um, in the state of Parak in the lower house of federal parliament has helped them um, in terms of, you know, publicity and resources and profile and all that sort of thing. Okay. Thank you so much, Sarah. And that's a great roundup of your trip. Yeah, thanks for coming <laughs> thanks on. Thanks for having me. Catch up with you again soon. <laughs> thanks. Bye. Bye. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday Morning Breakfast Show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Right, we shall go on to announcements. Yes, it's the activist calendar. Uh, so, uh, Sustainable Living Festival starts this weekend. Um, I'm going to be helping out the couple of stalls tomorrow over at Birarung Ma, just okay. near Fed Square. Hmm. So there'll be all these different stalls and stuff. Um, a lot of them will be more um, business orientated, shall we say, people oh. selling different <laughs> green products and solar panels. But there's also going to be some uh, activisty stalls. I know Beyond Zero Emissions are going to have a stall there. Uh, I'll be helping out with the Earthworker stall, and uh, I know Refugee Action Collective is also having a stall. So great. Yeah, that that link between the climate. What time is it? And Fed Square, what time? Is it on all day? Yeah, I think it starts at 10 in the morning and goes through till probably, I don't know, 4 or 5 in the afternoon. Okay, so if people are in the city, that would be a good place to drop in. Absolutely. And I'll just give a little plug to Earthworker. They're still running that crowdfunding campaign, uh, Give Tanks. So if you just Google Give Tanks Earthworker, um, if you can donate anything to that campaign, no donation too small, all the funds raised goes to putting solar hot water systems in community housing and in Aboriginal housing Victoria buildings. So, uh, yeah, it's a good cause. It helps keep the factory ticking along. So get behind it. Uh, now, as part of the Sustainable Living Festival calendar of discussions and events, there is a forum, Paris and After, Which Way Forward for the Climate Movement? That is on Wednesday the 17th. 
Um, global leaders have reached an agreement on climate change, but what does the Paris Agreement actually mean? What should the local climate movement be focusing on now? Includes an eyewitness report from a local citizen journalist recently returned from Paris, which is John Englart, who we interviewed recently. Uh, Andrea Bunting from Climate Action Mind and Socialist Alliance will be there. And the co-author of Climate Code Red and climate activist David Spratt um, will be there. Should be good. So, yeah, that's uh, a great forum. 6.30, Wednesday the 17th of Feb, and that's at the Resistance Centre in uh, the city. It's a Wednesday? This Wednesday coming. Okay. So, yeah, just near um, RMIT, the Resistance Centre. Okay, let's go on to um, another bit of news before we have further announcements. Or mm-hmm. Actually, after this, we might go on to the interview, which we have lined up. Now, mm-hmm. there's news from Greece, which is, um, I guess, interesting, if not unexpected. Mm. Um, the big strikes since, uh, I guess this is the first large strike uh, organized since Cyprus came to power. And as we know, um, the history of, of Greece, where Cyprus um, has been accused of selling out the people by accepting austerity measures mm. um, and... And we know that um, the people didn't like the agreement, hmm. but for good reasons, obviously, sorry. But the the result of that is now starting to come through. Up to 100,000 people attended, according to some organizers, um, hit the Athens streets. The strike is the largest since the leftist party took power in January last year on a platform of opposing the type of austerity measures the strike targeted. Now, pensions have been cut 11 times. Since 2010. Yes. Mm. That's appalling. Mm. And we also have other government um, tax increases and contributions to fund Social Security. Now, the the problem Cyprus has is how it's going to control them because the International Trade Union Conference announced the solidarity of its 180 million members with the Greek strike called by the General Confederation of Greek Workers. So it's going to be a major challenge for Cyprus. Um, despite his left-wing you know, propaganda-type campaign he ran prior to making the agreement with the, the, the trio, uh, now he's in a rock, between a rock and a hard place, and that's where he put himself. Hmm. Yeah, it's... Um, <clears throat> it's it's a challenging situation over there because there's. Um, no, he had. There's he didn't have to agree, though. He didn't have to agree to the. the yeah, it was the like agreement. Agree to this austerity measures that would bankrupt your your country. So it was. Um, yeah, it's been a difficult situation, and really, it's it's got to be that the the uprising that's happening in Greece has got to spread across more of Europe. Hmm. It's. Uh, if, if this is going to be stopped, it's going to be at a broader European level. Yeah, the, 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 for me, the, the key thing is this is going to be a good lesson for the people in Spain where Podemos is, is marching forward, the left-wing coalition. So that's going to be telling, and they're going to learn from the experience of Greece. Mm. So, as you say, Europe is going to pick up all these lessons, and even in, in the other countries, whether it's Italy or even Germany for that matter, uh, it's going to be 
really interested to watch exactly what they do. What we should do is at some point talk to uh, Dick Nichols, um, mm. who reports, and ask about the dynamics of what this is going to do um, to people in Europe and the how the neoliberal agenda is going to survive if people start doing this sort of stuff, which is absolutely fantastic in my opinion. To mm. <laughs> break this bloody stronghold of neoliberalism. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things to come out of the election of the Syriza government in Greece is that uh, even though they were elected on that left um, sort of platform, they didn't have as strong a connection to the activist base potentially as uh, in somewhere like Venezuela where the PSUV is this mass party. It's much more that activist base that social base is much more integrated to the parliamentary party. Whereas in Greece, the parliamentary party was not so connected to that social base. And so I think we're still seeing in these strikes that that activist base is, uh, you know, now openly uh, hostile and disciplining the Syriza government. Absolutely. And I I think... Uh, we had Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders face yes. and Podemos, like you say. You can't just get a left party elected into government. Yep. There's got to be that social base yep. to really fight for those kind of radical reforms that, yes. they've, that they're putting forward. It, um, it, it's the, the people have to have the power. If they don't, the neoliberals march right through it, hmm. the country. That, that's what... It's not understood clearly enough. If people decide they don't want something, they should be able to do something. But at this stage, in, in uh, Greece, Cyprus is really on the chopping block at the moment, the way mm. he's going and the way people are suffering because of the cuts. Mm. But anyway, we shall now move on to the next interview. I'll just go and get her on the phone while you maybe play an announcement. Yes, you are indeed. Uh, just another couple of activist calendar announcements uh, before we talk to Kate Lee from um, AFIDA about the uh, East Timor Sea boundaries. Uh, there's a rally coming up on Saturday the 20th of Feb at high noon, um, and the, that is the These Cuts Are Killing Us End Healthcare Austerity Rally. Uh, the Turnbull Coalition government is reducing funding for pathology tests. This could lead us to paying at least $30 for pap smears and urine and blood tests. These tests save lives, and nobody should go without health care because they can't afford it. We need publicly provided free and accessible pathology rather than cuts that bring uncertainty and anxiety to some of the most vulnerable in society. Only action in the streets will stop these cuts. Um, so you can sign the petition if you just Google Stop the Cuts. Uh, and that rally, Saturday the 20th of Feb, 12 noon at the State Library, 328 Swanston Street in the city. And then there is also the Walk for Justice for Refugees rally coming up on Palm Sunday, March 20. Uh, close Manus, close Nauru, free the refugees, permanent protection. So, um... Make sure you put that in your calendar and uh, come along so that we can yeah, really fight back in big numbers against the, the disgraceful and inhumane um, policies of this government and, put, and successive Australian governments towards refugees. Alrighty, so that brings us to our next discussion. 
Yes, with Kate Lee from ACTU, um, AFIDA, Unit Abroad. Morning, Kate Lee. Morning. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. Thank you so much for um, agreeing to talk to 3CR. Um, now, the ACTU had put out a mini release about um, an ALP announcement on the Timor Sea. I wonder if you want to give us a little bit of a understanding of what that actually means. Uh, well, yes, yesterday, um, uh, Tanya Plebisek, who's the um, Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs, announced that if Labor was in power, they would seek to give a final resolution on this issue of the Timor Sea boundary. Uh, so what she agreed to do was that, what she announced was that the ALP, if in power, would um, submit to voluntary a voluntary binding agreement in negotiation with the Timorese government, and if they couldn't settle it between them, that um, they would be willing to be subject to international law um, and an inter- and, and honour international law and, be, and, and have a binding agreement between Australia and Timor in terms of the division um, of um, uh, the Timor Sea um, oil boundary. So, I wonder if you could just give us a brief background about the original agreement, I think in 2002, when um, East Timor became, or Timor-Leste became independent, there was what was seen as an unfair agreement about the oil. I wonder if you, if you could share with us what you understand about that history. Yep. So the treaty, which was signed in 2006 between the Timorese government and the, and the Australian government at the time, um, which of course John Howard was in power and Alexander Downer as the foreign minister signed that agreement. Um, it uh, was a deal between Australia and New Zealand that had eight years of negotiations. Um, at the time, there was certainly criticism um, from many in Australia and Timor about um, the settlement, um, but it was reached. It wasn't a negotiated agreement. In 2013, though, it became apparent to all of us that the Australian government had um, been bugging those negotiations, and that was a pretty shameful um, um, act, obviously, by the Australian government. Um, and so at the time, shortly after, the uh, Timorese state called for that agreement to be scrapped, the, the treaty, uh, which is known as CMAT, they called for it to be scrapped and for Australia to en- enter into um, fresh negotiations around the boundary. So, um, but since then, successive governments have been unwilling to, um, to do that. Um, so it was a bit of a breakthrough that um, uh, this proposal by Tanya Plebisek. So the ACTU and Union Aid Abroad have called on uh, Malcolm Turnbull uh, to immediately commence negotiations to settle fair and permanent boundaries you know, based on current international law and practice. Hmm. So what, what is the, the, how does the deal um, so far divide the, the profits made from the uh, mining of oil? Well, I think the issue for us, certainly, um, as Union Aid Abroad, is that the worth of the oil of the Timor Sea um, that um, uh, Timor receives um, is, you know, far fails, um, uh, certainly fails its ability to um, be able to... Uh, it's it's a certainly an unjust and unfair arrangement. So since 1999, um, the Australian government has provided 
about $1 billion worth of aid to Timor. But the revenue which it has received, the Australian government has received, um, is estimated to be well in excess of $2 billion. In some, some estimates are up to $5 billion. So um, you can see that while Australia is giving with one hand in the aid project, um, it's certainly taking masses more with the other through revenue from the from the oil fields. Hmm. And so, and we also know that most of the aid money used, um, uh, most of the aid money given, sorry, to Timor is used for pursuing Australia's strategic interests, um, like beefing up the military and the police. Um, and it's certainly our view um, and the view of the broader Australian Union movement that Timor must be in control of its own development moving forward. It must have a share settlement on the boundaries um, and this issue must be settled once and for all. Timor's population and poverty um, since its independence in 2002 is still overwhelming. 80% of people... Uh, you know, survive on subsistence agriculture and um, under uh, the school participation rates of children doesn't even yet meet 50%. And we know that about 40% of people are malnourished. So um, Timor certainly, um, as one of the poorest countries on earth, needs its full, um, uh, the full revenues um, out of this deal. And certainly the Australian aid that we provide um, through the aid program um, uh, is small bickies compared to um, uh, the justice that um, the Timorese people deserve out of a proper deal. And Kate, just for listeners who haven't seen the uh, the map before, it's quite <laughs> outrageous. Yes. You can see the maritime boundary running along and then where these uh, oil-rich areas are in that sort of gap between Australia and East Timor, the border just kind of jumps out to conveniently capture a bunch of oil fields. <laughs> it's uh, quite scandalous, really. It sure does. And, um, yeah, it's well recognised internationally that it's um, not consistent with, um, you know, internationally recognised um, arrangements between countries on maritime boundaries. Hmm. Yeah. And um, the, the statement by Tanya Plibersek, I mean, what, what can be expected and how soon? Do you have any idea of what that really means in, on the ground as such? Well, it doesn't mean anything unless there is an ALP government in power, obviously. Um, and so that's why, you know, we've called on Malcolm Turnbull to um, immediately commence negotiations. But um, uh, what it is is, you know, a commitment that if Labor is in power at a future date, uh, they will uh, seek to settle um, the, the issue once and for all, but importantly be subject to international law and practice. And, uh, and that's, you know, obviously very important because um, the question of boundaries is internationally recognised already in terms of how maritime boundaries should be drawn between countries on issues like this. So making a commitment that um, a future Labor government would subject itself first to try and find a voluntary uh, binding resolution between Timor and Australia, and if you can't do that, then um, being willing to accept an internationally uh, recognised decision. Mm. Um, so that's a big step forward. Because um, since certainly since the agreement was signed, the, the, the current treaty was signed in 2006, uh, uh, which was certainly inadequate, 
there hasn't been a willingness to um, to change that, you know, um, uh, so that so that so that we have an agreement that's subject to international law. And have so we had a good step forward, but obviously um, either Malcolm needs to match it. That's yeah, right. match it now or it'll be it'll be um, the policy of a future Labor government. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Have we had any response from the East Timor government to this announcement? Yes, I think that they welcomed it um, uh, and uh, were obviously keen to I'm sure that, you know, they're um, approaching the current government uh, to ask them to reconsider their current position as a result. But we can see how it progresses. Thank you so much, Kate, for being up so early in the morning to be available to us. Oh, cheers. Great. Thank no you. No problem. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. I just want to um, read something which was um, printed uh, by the Depart- Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade uh, not long ago in relation to the East Timor issue. It says here, Australia and Timor-Leste have entered into three treaties governing maritime arrangements in the East Timor Sea and the treaties are consistent with international law including the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. This particular convention encourages a sort of interim resource sharing arrangements agreed by Australia and Timor-Leste. Under the Timor Sea Treaty, Timor-Leste receives 90% of petroleum revenue from the Joint Petroleum Development Area as a result, Timor-Leste has received over U.S. dollars $11 billion and accrued a petroleum fund now worth almost U.S. dollars $17 billion. Australia receives 10% of petroleum revenue from this particular uh, development area and received $1.29 billion U.S. dollars. It is often claimed that a media line would be an equitable Sorry, a median line would be an equitable solution and would put great, greater sunrise in East Timor waters. Such claims ignore the fact that the, the applying the median line principles would leave no more than 20.1% of the greater sunrise in, East, in, in Timorese jurisdiction, resulting in much less revenue for Timor-Leste that, than provided for in the current treaties. Hmm. How's that for a statement? So they're being very generous, according to the government. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bizarre beyond my belief. I, I was so furious when I thought, I, I have to read this, this statement by this department, government department, mm-hmm. in relation to East Timor. If they have received what this statement says, which is 17 billion U.S. dollars, East Timor will be very rich. Mm. It's a tiny little country. That will go... A long way towards the health services, education, mm. and mm. other developmental issues. Mm. It's totally, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. Anyway, that's really, really angry. Now, Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing. And this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that, yes, there is a certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples. 
suppose, that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. I'll read that one. All right. Um, so um, last week we had um, a comrade come in and talk about the Baluchi uh, independence and self-determination movement. And I just wanted to read out a statement um, from the Socialist Alliance that appeared in Green Left uh, regarding the assassination of uh, Baluchi leader by the post Pakistani state. Uh, so this was released on, on February 3. Uh, Socialist Alliance Australia condemns the murder by the Pakistani military on January 30 of Dr. Manan Baluch, Secretary General of Baluch National Movement, BNM, and four other BNM members. According to eyewitnesses, the military attacked the house where they were staying with mortar fire. Then troops entered and shot each of the occupants in the chest and head. The youngest victim was just 19 years old. Oh. All the victims were unarmed. The BNM is not an armed organisation. It's been waging a non-violent struggle for the independence of Balochistan, which has suffered partition and occupation by Pakistan and Iran since the 1940s. BNM activists are routinely victims of violence by the Pakistani state. In April 2009, BNM President Ghulam Mohammed Baloch was kidnapped from a legal office along with two other nationalist leaders. Their mutilated bodies were found five days later. Uh, and this forms part of a broader campaign of Pakistani state violence in Balochistan. At least 6,000 Baloch civilians were killed by Pakistani forces in the 1970s. Since 2004, about 2,000 civilians have been killed um, and uh, thousands of others have been arrested or simply disappeared. Um, Socialist Alliance condemns the murder of Dr. Manon Baluch and his comrades and other Pakistani state violence in Balochistan as well as other crimes by the Pakistani state. Um, Socialist Alliance supports self-determination for Balochistan and for other nations oppressed by the Pakistani state and stands in solidarity with the BNM and all those resisting Pakistani state violence and oppression and call for the Australian government to cut all military and security ties with Pakistan. Hmm. A couple more articles from Green Left Weekly. Um, both, uh, one is a little bit on the humorous side, but... The um, other one's a very sad one about a Sri Lankan boy, a six-year-old uh, boy, Tarshan Kugadasan, was found dead near a Navy base at Champur on the east coast of Sri Lanka on the 26th of January. The boy's body was found in a disused well. The body had been weighed down with a large stone tied to his body by military-style shoelaces. He had earlier been seen by the Sri Lankan Navy personnel who used to offer him food and chocolates, according to local residents quoted by Tamil Net website. 
Evidence indicates that he was raped and murdered by Navy personnel. This is not an isolated incident and has been a part of a pattern of violence and intimidation by the Sri Lanka military against the Tamil people. And this brings, um, of course, um, to the fore the issue of refugees, especially Tamil refugees, who are returned to Sri Lanka by mm. the Australian government. Mm. In the face of such atrocities against Tamils, especially even with children, they don't they don't care. Mm. The atrocities are just unimaginable, and it, it, it's it's um, atrocious that our government still sends um, Sri Lankan Tamil refugees back to Sri Lanka. Mm. So Not only that, but supplies the the regime with navy patrol boats so that it right. can round up people trying to get away. Yeah. and send them back to this sort of treatment. Yeah, and, and the Sri Lankan military occupation of the Tamil areas is also supported by the United States, India, which actually supplied all the intelligence when um, the uh, Sri Lankan army attacked and destroyed the Tamil Tigers in the um, 90s. Uh, China and Australia um, and a few other countries all supported the Singhala government, which is a fascist government, um, and this government continues to massacre Tamils, and um, it's not in the news, absolutely mm. not in the news. And what can I say? This um, Australian government has a lot to answer for. Mm. Now, the other bit of news is about um, visiting Turkish president's bodyguard, breaking the Ecuadorian MP's nose. I'm not sure if this is funny or this is serious, but I'm going to read the news anyway. Well, I don't find it particularly amusing. <laughs> supporters of the Kurdish struggle took to the streets of Ecuador's capital, Quito, on February 4th to support against Turkey's President um, Erdogan. Protest. Did I protest? Yes. Uh, on an official two-day visit. At the protest, one um, Erdogan bodyguard broke the nose of the Ecuadorian Member of Parliament. The protest opposed protesters opposed Ankara's military operation against the militant Kurdish Workers' Party PKK group in which hundreds of civilians have been killed in Saugus. Protesters chanted, Long live Kurdistan, murder Erdogan, out, of, out with Erdogan as a Turkish leader entered the University of Kyoto. Um, Giran Oskan, the Latin American representative of the group of communities in Kurdistan, KCK, was at the protest and told Tulsa that Vintimilia, which was with the protesters, was injured in a confrontation with one of Erdogan's security guards. No, it's not amusing at all. Um, he said that the protest was an important action where people of um, Ecuador are showing solidarity with the Kurdish people and people of the Middle East against aspiring dictators such as Erdogan and evil organizations that he supports such as ISIS. Erdogan met with the Ecuadorian President Rafael Correa in the capital to finalize economic deals between the two nations, which Erdogan described as strategic and the beginning of a golden era between Turkey and Ecuador. Turkey and Ecuador currently have trade agreements that amount to almost 200 million U.S. dollars. Erdogan said the two countries aim to increase trade to U.S. 500 uh, million dollars and even to one billion without specifying deadlines. So it seems that Erdogan, despite the kerfuffle that went on when the elections happened, where it actually, the elections actually happened twice, mm. just to make sure that he got into power, is now traveling the world, gathering support for his government, 
so that they can do whatever they want, mm. including supporting IS mm. or ISIS rather, not IS. Yeah, it's pretty disappointing that, um, of course, the Korea government in uh, Ecuador is part of that pink tide in Latin America. Uh, it's been a, a progressive government, good for indigenous um, rights in Ecuador, taking yeah. on the oil interests. But, mm. um, yeah, pretty disappointing that they've hosted uh, Erdogan and uh, this delegation to sort of, you know, it gives legitimacy to the to this brutal Turkish uh, government when, when they host them. So it's I really find it curious because Latin American, Latin American countries um, generally have been very progressive and supportive of progressive struggles around the world. But on, on two fronts, they stand out as um, not so um, strategically progressive because this is one, one example, the, this treaty between Turkey and um, Ecuador. But the other one is where Cuba supports the Sri Lankan government. Mm, mm. And I find that really curious and very sad because generally Cuba has been very good at supporting um, liberation struggles around the world. Um, from what I understand, it seems that because the U.S. supports the Sri Lankan um, government, um, they feel that they... No, I think it's the other way around. The Sri Lankan government has been attacked by uh, various countries for breach of human rights. They feel third world country leaders are being attacked by the West. Um, there's some confusion there and some, you know, um, misunderstanding. I'm not sure about it. But uh, certainly the diaspora, uh, the Tamils around the world, certainly have criticized Cuba on, on, uh, um, on that issue. So we've got two countries or two issues that, you know, Mm. that are out of step with what normally three uh, Latin American countries tend to do. Yeah, and I think in the absence of more of a pink tide globally with more progressive governments around the yes. world to have these sort of trade agreements with uh, countries that are sort of pushed into a bit of a corner mm. like Cuba or, or probably to a bit of a lesser extent Ecuador, uh, they are kind of forced into a position where they have to make uh, unprincipled trade agreements and diplomatic um, arrangements. So it's kind of a symptom of, yeah, being forced into a corner. But mm. yeah, pretty disappointing nonetheless. But it's good to see that a whole bunch of people are uh, getting out and protesting yes. in Ecuador there. Mm. Okay, that brings us towards the end of the program. And you've been listening to Friday Breakfast and Green Left Weekly Radio. Thank you for tuning in. And this is Zane and Lalita saying goodbye to listeners. And till next Friday with more news.